Hey everybody, we just finished our semester here and are taking a little bit of a break. But as we recharge, I thought this would be a perfect time to replay an episode from last year about electric vehicles. Enjoy. McMinnville, Oregon. This is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that lists the good times roll. Oh, I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Electric Vehicles. Hey, Chad. Just electric vehicles, not the cars or electric cars. No, vehicles that's, generally. that's hitting it over the head too much. A little too on the nose. Yeah. Okay. But today we are talking about electric vehicles. Just about every major car manufacturer is coming out with at least some sort of model that is an electric vehicle in the next few years. And that's that's a different thing from a hybrid. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of it's the same technology. It's just a matter of density. So historically, there are internal uh-huh. combustion engines. That's what most cars that we think of do. Mm-hmm. What is it? What, 10, 15 years ago now, Toyota and Honda both came out with what were called hybrids back then, mm-hmm. which had a combination of an electric motor and an internal combustion engine. So they got both. And so that's why we call them hybrids. The hybrids of like the Prius and the Insight had very few batteries. And hmm. so the intent there was that basically when you're slowing down, they're charging up the battery that they have, but there's not a lot of juice there to run most of the time. It's primarily using the combustion engine and then using electric to fill in the gaps here and there. Okay. There are now a number of purely electric vehicles. Tesla is probably the most famous of that, but Mm -hmm. Nissan has the Leaf. There is coming out, there's going to be a Hummer. Mm. Ford is coming out both with a Mustang and a F-150. Like I said, a lot of them are are coming out with purely electric vehicles that you plug them in at night and that's that's the only juice you got. Mm. And then there are a number of other companies that are coming out with a mixture between the two where you can still plug it in so that the electric part is your primary power source. Mm Mm-hmm. But that if you're going on a very long trip, you might want to use gasoline as well. And so they have Mm. the facilities for both of those. Okay. So it seems that the big difference here is their fuel sources, right? And and so they've got to have some sort of energy source to move around. So why don't you start us there? Yeah. So all vehicles need some sort of energy. It's all mm-hmm. just a conversion of energy. And and it's actually interesting. Before we started today, I, I was telling Chad about how electric cars running on batteries have been around a very long time. Hmm. Actually, they were first invented back in the 1830s, it turns out. Now, those cars could only travel about 50 miles before they would run out of the, the juice. But basically, what you need is to convert one energy source into another. And so if you go back before then, we had trains and trains had steam engines, Uh which was great. You would burn a bunch of coal and you'd have a bunch of water on hand to boil the water. And then the steam from that water would churn the pistons and so forth and turn a wheel. But basically the reason it was possible to use a train in this way was that they would have an entire car filled with coal and you just shovel it in as you're going along, right? So it was not really compact energy. It was able to, to just shovel it in when you needed it. But having an individual car vehicle like we have now that was not a practical solution. And so gasoline is great because it is very energy dense. You know, mm-hmm. you can fill up your tank and you've got a whole lot of energy just stored in there. Actually, much more energy than we can even pull out of that, which mm-hmm. we'll get into here in a little bit. And then batteries before were also 
probably too bulky to be terribly useful. Okay. To, you know, you would have to have a lot more batteries, physically bulky batteries, in order to actually travel very far. And so because they were so big and so heavy, they were not a practical solution to a car. Okay. But electric vehicles are getting much better now. Um, Does that have to do with improvements in battery technology that we're going to talk exactly, about? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. But electric vehicles are very different actually from combustion engines. And so I think it's worth spending a little bit of time to talk about the internal combustion engine and and what's going on there. And then we'll be able to compare and contrast what's happening with that. Yeah. So there are several different stages to a combustion engine. First, you've got the pistons, you know, where the spark plugs are and all that sort of thing, right? Then you have something called the crankshaft that leads to the powertrain. And this all leads to being able to drive. Okay. So let's kind of break some of those pieces down. Okay. So the pistons, most cars are like a four cylinder engine Mm -hmm. where you've got four different pistons firing off. Really big trucks might have like eight, you know, Uh a V8. You might've heard of that and stuff. Sure. And basically what's happening is that you have this piston where you're pumping a little bit of gasoline into that. And what it does is you compress the gas into that piston very, very tightly. And sometimes if you do that just right, it'll just ignite on its own and it will explode. Hmm. And so basically we've got this piston. You have the sliding part that just slides in and it's compressing all the gas. And like in a diesel engine or something like that, just the pressure alone will make it spark and make it explode. And so this is happening inside of like a cylindrical chamber. Yep. And then so the piston is like a column that can slide in and out of that cylindrical chamber. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like when you go to the doctor, the big needles and things, right? They have this piston in the tube. And so they fill up the tube with the syringe. With the syringe, yeah. Got it. And you can press in the syringe and you can, in that case, it spits out the other side. But but in an engine, it's, it's allowed to build up all the pressure. Okay. And when you do that, then it can explode on its own. Or most cars nowadays have spark plugs inside which Mm -hmm. will, at a certain time, they will fire to ignite it that way. And so there's just a tiny little bit of fuel that's allowed into the chamber at a time, right? And it's it's that little bit when it's compressed that's ignited. And then it's that sort of controlled explosion that rapidly pushes the piston back out. Right. So then it forces the piston back out. Okay. And then a little bit later, you let some more in and you kind of repeat that process. Okay. And so generally there are four because they're on what's called the crankshaft, which is this kind of a zigzaggy shaped piece of equipment, basically. But you can imagine like one piston is tied to one of these. And then as the first one fires out, it's turning the crankshaft. And then as the crankshaft comes back around, then it forces the plunger to go back in again. And generally there are four different cycles of this so that each piston is firing in turn. It's going boom, 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 boom. And when it's doing that, then each one is firing at just the right time to push its piston out, which continues to turn this crankshaft. Okay. And so these are these are like at the on the bottom of the piston, these are these little arms with with little rotating joints on them, right? That mm-hmm. that sort of allow for that movement. And then those are all connected up to the same thing that they're turning, though, right? Yeah. And so those are all connected so that basically like when the first one fires it forces the bar down away from it. But then the next one is with the first part of that bar going down and the second part is forced up around it. So that's pushing the second one up in order to fire next. Mm -hmm. And so once that fires, then that pushes that part down and then the the third one is then forced up and so forth. Okay. So they, they have this cycle where they're all kind of pushing like that and it's forcing this thing to rotate around. And the point of having that is that all these cylinders are sort of a linear motion. They're just going in and out, in and out, in and out. Right. Okay. 
And so what the crankshaft does then is it makes a rotation out of that motion. It converts the linear motion into a rotational motion. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, ultimately that's what you want because you want tires to, to spin. And so I guess, so this crankshaft, I'm picturing like some sort of long, narrow, cylindrical piece of metal or something that sort of like if you were to take a pencil and sort of rotate it between your fingers, it's, it's taking that kind of a motion now, right? Yes. Now, the, the issue with that is the crankshaft is aligned front to back, if that makes sense. So with your pencil analogy, you're rolling your fingers so that the tip of the pencil is the front of the car. Okay. But that's not rotating in the correct direction. Right. Okay. We want the rotation to be of the tires, which are aligned, say, left and right. Right. And so probably most people understand how the axis of the tires is perpendicular to that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. By the way, the crankshaft, old-timey cars, you literally had a stick on a crankshaft on the front to get it started. You would rotate this thing around. Oh, I've seen movies like with the person in the front and they've got the little handle that they stick into the, like where the radiator is or something. Yep. Right. Yep. And so that's what they're doing. That, that They're making it start rotating. Crankshaft. And if they, and if you do it enough, then the explosions start happening and it'll just rotate on its own. Oh, I see. So they, they are by hand turning the pistons, which do all those things you were talking about of compressing yeah. the gas. And then if they do it sufficiently, the little explosions will start happening and then that takes over. Yeah. Oh, and is that how you start like uh, one of those old timey planes as well? Probably. Yeah. Same thing going on. Yeah. You like got to get it started like, and then it's... rotate the propeller. Yep. Okay. And then you jump out of the way. And then, <laughs> right. Okay. All Otherwise, right. you've got like a Indiana Jones situation. And... Right. Yeah. I was just thinking of the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so that's the crankshaft. So that's rotation. So the axis of rotation is front to back. Then you have to make that rotate sort of 90 degrees to that for the tires. Okay. And so that's something called the powertrain. And you've probably heard of that term. Like sometimes when you buy a new car, they'll have a powertrain warranty for this many miles or something like that. Uh-huh. And there are a whole bunch of parts to this. It's basically, uh-huh. it's changing the rotation though from front to back to left to right so that the uh-huh. tires can actually spin. Okay. And the, the bit here is that it even if we already had the rotation in the right direction from the engine, we need some sort of conversion like this anyway, because the engine has to fire at a pace no matter what. Right. So that axle is always rotating. Mm-hmm. But if that was just connected directly to your tires anyway, well, that's not going to help you out too much because, you know, if you're sitting at a stoplight, you don't want that engaged. You okay. Know? You want okay. to be able to stop. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And coasting, you know, once you've reached your speed and you just take your foot off the gas, you want it to be able to slip then as well. And so an important part of this is being able to slip between okay. the, the rotating part that is driven by the engine and the rotating part that is forcing the tires to also move. Okay. So there's got to be some measure of control of how much of the engine's energy that's being produced is transmitted to the wheels. Yeah. Okay. And we won't get into all that detail there, except to say, like, have you ever driven stick? Yes, definitely. I learned on a stick. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And had stick shifts for many years. I I miss having a stick shift. I do not miss it. (laughs) I I don't miss getting pizza and sitting at the stoplight stalled out. (laughs) I have memories when I was 16 years old doing that many, many Uh times. But when you have that, you have a third pedal that's called the clutch, right? Mm -hmm. And anytime you want to engage the gears, you have to do something with the clutch so that, you know, the, the gears are there so that you're going at different speeds and things like that. Kind of like a 10 speed bike, you can change the gear ratio to give you more power. And anyway, all of that together with the clutch, with the gears, with all this different stuff, that is all considered the powertrain. Okay. The powertrain then is doing two things. It's changing the, the direction of the rotation, but it's also allowing you to 
to sort of decouple the frequency of the rotation of the wheels from the rotation of the crankshaft. Okay. Now the crankshaft, you can change that. That's revolutions per minute, RPMs. That's one of the dials on your car. Mm -hmm. But you don't necessarily want that coupled directly to the rotation of the tires. And so those have to be decoupled a little bit. Right. And you wouldn't want like a one-to-one relationship between how fast the crankshaft is going and how fast your wheels are going. Because then you, if you had like a one gear car, right? Sort of like a one gear bicycle. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to go uphill in a bicycle with just one gear. And so right. you wouldn't be able to control the gearing of like in the bicycle, you need to shift to a lower gear. And so have your engine be doing a little bit more work, but the wheels going more slowly. Yeah. And so kind of like how gears are related to like how much I'm pedaling, right? which is kind of like analogous to the pistons. But then the gears on my bicycle is sort of analogous to the powertrain and transferring that sort of up and down motion of my feet into this rotational energy of the tires. And it has to be geared such that the work I'm doing is moving the tires at an appropriate speed. Yeah. I like that analogy. That's great. Okay. But anyway, so all these things put together create what a lot of car companies, you'll see them talking about torque, for instance, which is like torque, torque. I've heard of twerking. How is that related? (laughs) No, torque. Oh, torque. Sorry. T-O-R-Q-U-E, torque. That's basically rotational force, essentially. So a lot of car companies are like, oh, well, you know, my truck has this much torque. And so I think you have to, they say it exactly in that tone of voice too. (laughs) See, not exactly like that because I've never smoked before, but you have the idea. It's a lower pitch and it's also very rough, smoky sounding. Sure. Like you've lived a hard life. Anyway, to get full torque, you have to have a lot of power coming from the pistons, from the crankshaft, and from the powertrain. All three of those have to work together. Like if you have a weak powertrain, then you're not getting all the torque that you would otherwise want to get. From okay. Um, Interestingly, anyway. all the same things are true about a powerful twerk. So. <laughs> <laughs> Please all cut right. that out. <laughs> no, it's in there now. I'm sorry. Electric vehicles, though, work very differently from that. They have just a single electric motor, which is operated through basically changes in magnetism. So whenever current runs through a wire, a magnet will apply a force to that wire. Hmm. I mean, we have all sorts of experiments in our intro labs where we do things like that, where we we have a balance and you can see that pushing up the entire wire and you can actually measure that and all sorts of things like that. But if I wanted to make an engine out of that process, I want to have a magnet and then current going through a wire and that will deflect the, the wire and create a force. And that works out well. Now, if I just did that with just a single wire, though, the wire will get pushed by the magnet as far as it can go, and it'll just stop there. Right. Okay. And so we don't necessarily want that. What we want is to have rotational motion. And actually, in in my intro lab, I'd like to do this lab where I have the students build a simple motor like that, where they just have a loop of wire. It's free to rotate in one direction and it sits on top of a a magnet and it just starts spinning on its own. I feel like I've seen this before. It's like a little, you can take a a length of copper, thin copper wire and like wrap it into a little around a pencil or something. So you make a little loop. Yep. And so now basically you have maybe like an inch long piece of wire with this sort of circle of the loop in the middle. And then that rests on like a couple of little metal pedestals, sort of like a rotisserie. Yep. And then the magnets underneath that. And then you hook up a battery yep. to either side of those little metal pegs that it's sitting on. Mm-hmm. I feel like I remember building one of those a long time ago as a kid. Yeah, they're fun. Yeah, it's totally cool. And so, you know, let's say I had a loop of wire and I had a magnet sort of maybe at the bottom of that wire. Mm-hmm. What would happen is I could turn on the current and it would force rotation in that loop of wire to spin around. 
But if I just did that, though, it would stop. It would orient itself in whatever direction the force would tell it to do. And then it would stop. Because basically, if I have a loop of wire, think about current going around in a circle. I'm thinking going clockwise. So on the right-hand side, the current is going down. On the left-hand side, the current is going up. And so if I put a magnet up to that, it turns out the left side might get pulled up, the right side would get pushed down. And that would work, but that would make it rotate, say, 90 degrees. And, and then, then just would, stop. Yeah. Okay. And so what you need is some way to turn it on and off and on and off. So instead of having just a battery on there, you could have something that's putting pulses of on, off, on, off, on, off to make it spin around the way that you want it to spin. So you're suggesting that our listeners should plug this into their wall outlets then, I think is what I hear you saying. No, I'm not because um, <laughs> that oh. way you're not able to control the frequency of it. Oh, okay. And so what electric vehicles do is they actually, they have batteries, which is giving you direct current, that's DC, and they have to convert that into an AC. Uh -huh. And we won't talk about how you do that, but it's not terribly hard to do that. Okay. But most importantly from that is that when you're making that conversion from DC to AC, you get to pick what the frequency will be. Hmm. And so, you know, we went through all this stuff and it seemed like a, a horrible diversion to talk about how an internal combustion engine works and the powertrain and the crankshaft and all this stuff. But remember, we needed to have the powertrain to decouple the frequencies oh, because we I wanted see. to be able to push at different frequencies. For an electric motor, it's very simple. You're going from a DC and you can just pick whatever frequency you want it to be to make it start spinning. And so, and you can change that at will. So you say you can change that at will. So then is that what you're doing when you press or let up on the accelerator? Yes. Oh. And so when you're pressing on it, you are telling the onboard computer to change the frequency to really start cranking it. Okay. And so it turns out electric motors are much simpler than, you know, for the internal combustion engine, we had to go through three different steps to get it to actually rotate the tires. Right, because we got the explosion causing the linear motion, Yep, converting that to a rotational motion, Yep, and then not only turning that rotational motion 90 degrees, but also uncoupling it in a way from the engine that we could control how much of the engine's energy is going to the tires. Exactly. So that's complicated. Yeah, okay. And so this can be done all in one step. And for that reason, we can directly drive the axles of the tires just from the one step, which means actually that the torque in an electric vehicle can be significantly higher than that for an internal combustion engine. Hmm. And in fact, I did a quick little web search of which commercially available vehicles have the highest torque and the top five are all electric cars. Huh. And then the next is like a Lamborghini or something crazy like that. Okay. So that's one of the big differences right there is that you can get incredible torque and full disclosure, I drive an electric vehicle and it is kind of fun. Uh -huh. I mean, you just put on the accelerator and and it's like you're riding a roller coaster. It can be a lot of fun. Huh. Okay. So they're peppy. They are peppy. It is definitely possible to get a peppy car. Well, can we talk a little bit more about the different kinds of cars that are electric vehicles? Because I mean, I feel like most of the electric vehicles have started out being sort of small to medium sized cars. Mm -hmm. And only now are we starting to see it make it into like SUVs and trucks. Yeah. And so what is it about an electric motor that it came to things like SUVs and trucks later? That seems to me to suggest that maybe there was some innovation that needed to happen before an electric vehicle, even though it has 
high torque would have the power that you would expect to be able to like be in a truck or an SUV. Is that correct? And what's involved there? I actually don't know why it's taking longer to get to the bigger vehicles. I suspect it's more a question of convincing people that it's doable. Hmm. And I suspect it's more a question of people being able to imagine that they could drive a car like that. Hmm. So Nissan, I think, was the first one to come out with a commercial availability, the Nissan Leaf. Uh-huh. But it only, it had a very small range it, before you had to charge it in again. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of freaked a lot of people out. And I think part of that also, so this actually goes back to the battery issue is that the earliest vehicles use lead acid batteries, which is like the battery in most cars is a lead acid battery. Okay. Most of the batteries that you buy, you know, the AA, the AAA batteries, those are lead acid as well. Hmm. So it's a technology that's been around a long time, but the problem is that they are very bulky. The density of energy per volume is is very small. Hmm. And so, yes, the earliest versions of this were able to travel, but because it was so bulky, they were very heavy as well. And so you were using a lot of your effort to just get them to move at all. Uh So that was an issue. Now it's much more common. Most people are using lithium ion batteries. Okay. Lithium, if you remember your periodic table, Uh it's a metal, but it's a very light metal. It has an atomic number of three. So you've got hydrogen, helium, and lithium. And then you get to heavier and heavier things. And so, uh, so it's lithium, lithium solid at standard temperature and pressure. It is a solid, I believe. Yeah. Okay. And typically you would mix it with some other metals to actually make the battery itself though. Oftentimes people use either cobalt or nickel to make the actual battery apparatus. But with the the bulk of it being this light metal, being the lithium, then it makes the impact of the weight a lot less. So you're able to get by with it. Now, all this together, there are environmental impacts to all of this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what a lot of people are mostly talking about at the moment with both of these. I mean, it's there are some obvious advantages to electric vehicles. For one thing, we don't have these controlled explosions. And internal combustion engine is running much, much hotter than an electric car does. And so for that reason, you have to get an oil change every 3,000 miles or 10,000, depending (laughs) on... I saw it by your face. You're like, oh, I don't know. That sounds more like a dare to me. But an electric vehicle, you don't need to do that. So you're saving money that way. The brake pads don't wear out nearly as quickly because when you take your foot off the accelerator, then it's trying to collect that energy back. And so you're not actually using the brakes most of the time. Hmm. It turns out that the efficiency of an internal combustion engine, you know, with these controlled explosions, it's creating a lot of energy. You know, the gasoline has a lot of energy built in there, but you're only able to recover maybe 30 to 35% of that energy and transfer it into motion. Hmm. That's because it's blowing things up and then... Most of that is just in the form of hot gas that then has to get exhausted out. Interesting. Okay. Now, an electric vehicle in principle, is almost 100% conversion from the energy that's stored in the battery to the motion. Hmm. It's very high. I mean, it's not exactly 100, but it's up in the 90s. But there is energy lost in the production of the electricity that you put into storing into the battery, right? And so it's sort of displacing that efficiency to someplace else. And so what we really have to talk about then is how efficient is your energy power grid? Oh, okay. I see. Sorry. I was still thinking about like the vehicle itself. But what you're talking about is when you plug it into your outlet at night, Right. How is the energy coming to that outlet being produced? Right. And that might be any number of ways. Yeah. I mean, it could be coal. It could be natural gas. It could be solar energy. It could be hydro dam. And for instance, coal is not terribly efficient either. It's only about 33% efficient. So if you're in a part of the country where your main source of energy is coming from coal power plants, then an electric vehicle is about as efficient in that case as a gas vehicle would be. When you consider the whole ball of wax. 
Right. Okay. Yeah. If all you have is coal power, then that's it. Now, other sources like natural gas are much more efficient. They're like 60% efficient. Okay. And generally, we you might think of like solar as being free uh-huh. because the sun is going to shine no matter what. And windmills are basically free. Hydro dams are basically free as well. So if you have renewable resources, then it can be significantly better. Uh Now, I will say electricity, at least right now in the United States, is a lot cheaper than gasoline, especially right now. Typically, you can think of that to go about 300 miles, you would have to charge an electric vehicle. It would cost about $10 to do that. Oh, Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's much less than it would cost me to go 300 miles in in my gas powered vehicle. Yeah, I'm estimating I'm saved about $200 this last month. Wow. Okay. And a big thing that people are really talking about now is carbon dioxide mm-hmm. and overall energy. And engineers like to talk about something called cradle to grave. Have you okay. ever heard of this? I think so. And my understanding is that it has something to do with the very initial manufacturer to the final resting place, I guess. Yeah. Whether you can recycle the materials or if they uh. just sit in a landfill. And so they, they're trying to calculate all these sort of things. And you can actually find a lot of papers tackling this exact question here. And so no matter what, we're producing quite a bit of CO2. So if you have a combustible engine, it's producing CO2. Power plants, if they're not renewable, are producing CO2. And in fact, in the United States, at least about two thirds of all our energy is from non-renewable sources. So coal, natural gas, things Mm -hmm. like that, that you're burning. And so if you just think in that way, well, if you had nothing but solar power on your roof mm-hmm. and we're powering it entirely from solar, you would think that you're not contributing at all to the CO2 by driving a, an electric vehicle. Mm-hmm. But it, even if you include the fact that there's some mixture of non-renewable resources going to it, you're using a lot less than a combustible engine would be. Right. And But that is basically from the moment that you purchase it until the moment that you no longer own the car. Right. That's right. true. But what you seem to be suggesting is that we need to expand our understanding of the impact of this yeah. item. Okay. Yeah. And so then people do come about the question of like, well, how much energy does it take to put together the, all the batteries in the first place? Uh huh. How much energy does it take to put together a combustible engine in the first place? Mm-hmm. When you're done with it, how much energy does it take to dispose of those things? For a combustible engine, you've got this hunk of metal that has a bunch of oil inside of it. And so you can't put that in your garden. That will that'll leach out eventually, you know. But uh-huh. same thing with the batteries. You you have to dispose of them properly and so forth. Uh-huh. And when you get to this, there are many different estimates and many different assumptions going into all these estimates and so forth. And it's a hard number to actually get down and tackle. But generally speaking, it is considered that it costs more in CO2 to make an electric vehicle get in the first place. Hmm. Most internal engines cost about eight tons of CO2 to just produce it, to make the engine and everything like that. Okay. And initially to make the engines for the battery packs and so forth, people were estimating it cost about 12 to 13 tons of CO2. Um, okay. So it's like one and a half times. More. Yeah. Is what just on a making this engine versus that engine. But I guess I'm wondering if you drive, how much does a person drive in a year? 5,000 miles, 6,000 miles, maybe? Okay. Let's say a 6,000 miles, that's 500 miles a month, roughly. Mm-hmm. How many tons of CO2 are you putting into the atmosphere from the combustion of the fuel? Yeah. And so even though initially the electric vehicle is a little bit more, uh-huh. you're right that you are saving, even if you're assuming that you're using some non-renewable resources to power your car, Mm -hmm. you are ultimately going to pass it. And it's really a question of when. And Uh so 
depending on your exact estimates, it might be some sources I found said it would be about one year. Some said it might be up to five years, but eventually you're going to win. I will say that more recent calculations that I've seen seem to be settling more on that electric vehicles are now about nine tons as opposed to the 12 or or so. So that just means you're going to come to that a lot faster. Okay. I think the main difference there is that early on the lithium was mined out of the earth, but now phones are using lithium ion cars are using it, more options are available. Hmm. And and in fact, it's possible to actually take salt water from some sources and you can pull out the lithium from the salt water. And that is much more efficient. Pull out lithium from salt water. That sounds... Well, you normally would think of table salt, NaCl. When When I say salt, you thought table salt. Oh, but lithium can make a salt. Lithium can also make a salt. Got it. Okay. So for a chemist, the salt is just basically... You have something from the first column and something from the second to last column. And they, when they're dry, will form a compound. But when you put it in water, then they dissociate and separate out. And so lithium and sodium are in the same column as each other. Is that right? Yeah. Lithium is actually right above sodium. Got it. Okay. And so, you know, you can have lithium chloride or lithium fluoride or whatever. And so there are sources where it's an entire lake with a lot of lithium salt Hmm. in there in some form, but they're able to separate out the lithium. And and so it's a lot more efficient and less energy intensive to make those batteries now. Okay. And even if you include the throwing them away, the batteries, there are some technologies now to actually recycle the batteries even after they've been used. Mm -hmm. Those are at the moment very cost prohibitive, but they're getting better as well. And so if we learn how to recycle them better, then all these things on the EV side are going to improve over time. Uh huh. And it seems like there's a lot of upside still. Yeah. I mean, I would say that electric vehicles are still sort of in the early days. And so there's a lot more space to improve upon then an internal combustion engine is about as efficient as it can be. We can still find some lighter alloys of things to make mm-hmm. them even lighter mm-hmm. and maybe make them more efficient by changing the cylinder to be just a millimeter difference or this or that. Mm-hmm. But the biggest thing for EVs is that we need to get more renewable energy resources. And that seems to be that's happening now anyway, mm-hmm. that people are recognizing that that's a direction that we want to go around the world. And it always, how long does it take, say you're on a uh, long distance trip, uh-huh. Right. How long does it take to charge your car up so that you can continue? Like the experience with an internal combustion engine is that, you know, you stop at a gas station and 15 minutes later, you're on the road again. Oh, 15. Wow. I was going to say five, but well, you know, you have to get out and stretch your legs and use the bathroom. And uh, right. Well, so yeah, that is probably the thing that has kept EV vehicles down more than anything else is that people are worried about the charging time. Mm -hmm. In practice, I found that with my car, if I charge it up all the way, I could go to Seattle. Uh-huh. And I'd have to charge it up there and then I could come back down here uh-huh. to full charge. But with what I have, I can easily drive to the coast and back. I can uh-huh. drive to Corvallis and back all on one charge. When you buy the car, they give you like a, a pack for in case you're like desperate. <laughs> you can plug it into the wall. And if that happens, you're up a creek because if you have to use just a normal plug, a normal wall socket, uh-huh. it'll take like a day to charge up completely. Okay. Okay. If you're totally desperate, you've got that option, but that's not what you want. Okay. I have installed a charging station at my house uh-huh. and it takes about four hours, oh, and, but and there so- are also things called supercharging stations. Uh-huh. And I've used that once and it charged it in less than an hour. Okay. And that happened to be at a uh, an outlet mall. And so I was just walking around and, and I wasn't totally ready yet. I was still... Uh-huh. You were still like shoes. at Claire's Boutique or something waiting to get your ears pierced. And that's get why I line. don't have my ears pierced yet. And that's yeah. why. Yeah. Yeah. 
So yeah, I mean, um, you could drive across country and like get a tattoo while you uh-huh. wait and just get you know different things along the way. <laughs> get, get it worked on a little bit. That but actually, I mean, the... in my mindset, it's like, okay, I can drive 300 miles. That's three or four hours in the car already. Mm-hmm. I'm getting older now, so I can't really just keep going. <laughs> so I would probably want to get out, as you said, stretch your legs and stuff mm-hmm. and probably do more than that. Maybe like sit down and have dinner or something like that and then mm-hmm. continue on. So I can imagine that it won't be so bad. Mm-hmm. Maybe a reconceptualization of what it means to go on a road trip would be useful. It might not be a bad thing if people sort of got out and spent a little bit longer in places where they were traveling through and, you know, well, I'm ready to go out and think about buying an electric car. They are fun. Yeah. I'll give you a test drive of mine sometime. Okay. I've actually learned now with my car, like most of my life is spent just going to work and home. <laughs> oh yeah. The vast majority of the miles on my vehicles is between home and, and work. Yeah. When I first got the car, I was concerned that I'd run out of charge all the time. And that's still sort of on the back of my mind sometimes, but it's much less of a concern than it once was. I'm able to get mm-hmm. to most places that I need to go. Yeah. I, I think they're pretty good. All right. Well, I'm convinced. Nice. We're going to give Elon the crisscrossing bump here. <laughs> Goodness knows he needs it. Yeah. Cool, Mike. Thanks. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodeo Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for a future episode, email us at crisscrossingside@gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>